This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 102, Keeping Up with the Rockefellers, the Family Office Concept. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Who needs to keep up with the Joneses when you can keep up with the Rockefellers, right? That's a much better goal, in my opinion. Welcome, everybody, Mm -hmm. to a new episode, and welcome, Holly, to the studio. Yes, thank you, Mark. Welcome, everyone. So we've got some quick announcements to make, and then we want to get right into our content. The first uh, and the first of two announcements. The first is on September 7th, 2019, uh, at 1 p.m. Central Time, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be doing a very first and I think kind of exciting uh, live show. We're going to do this thing. We're going to give it a shot. Uh, so anyone listening can uh, essentially be a part of that show. What we'd like to try to do is uh, go over a very interesting concept. We get this con- we get this question quite often from our listeners, and that is, is bank on yourself better, and that word is in asterisks, better yeah. than investing in the stock market and, and buying some term insurance instead? So is it better than buying and investing the rest, right? Buying term and investing the rest. So we're going to have a special guest. Uh, the guest is Amanda Neely, and she's going to be going through some calculations and some numbers and literally showing us what would have happened had she put her money into a Roth IRA or uh, put it into a bank on yourself policy instead. I think you guys are going to be floored. We are going to be doing this with a video uh, component as well, but you get to call in and give your questions uh, on our show. So be a part of it. Uh, go to our show notes to register to be a part of that. But it's uh, again, the event is Saturday, September 7th from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Central Time, just for your time zone, of course. Uh, so that's the first announcement. Second is, again, we are taking uh, your ideas. We want to hear from our listeners, our community. It only takes 90 seconds to go to our 90-second survey. And the, uh, the link is uh, in our show notes as well. But you can find it by going to uh, bit.ly, that's bit.ly slash nyafp90. That's the, the website to go to. And you can fill out that survey and let us know if you'd like to be a part of a learning community that takes this not your average financial approach to their financial lives. Anything awesome. else on that, Holly? No, it's great. Sounds like we got some fun stuff coming up for people to not only listen to, but participate in. So kind of like, feel like that's like the next step, you know? You yep. have to like listen to us yak all the time, but now mm-hmm. you don't have to. You can you can call in and, and actively participate. So that's awesome. We want to hear your yakking as much as you've heard ours. I think we're due, <laughs> more than due. So very cool. Well, guys, so let's get right into, I think, what's a powerful financial strategy that I'm not sure we've really touched on much in this episode, in this show so far, and that is uh, estate planning. Uh, you know, wow. All right. So for those still listening, uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about some of the biggest transfers of wealth. You know, I'd say in our lifetimes are at points that really we all have to face. You know, retirement might be one, kids' college, uh, but our own death, right? Our own passing away. Uh, so you know, most discussions around wealth and money use the idea of estate planning and transfers of wealth interchangeably. Uh, Although they're not the same, most estate planners today don't even really broach the concept with their clients, uh, which, 
you know, might or might not include less tangible assets of wealth uh, as they're drafting an estate plan. You know, maybe it's a simply, simply putting together a will or a trust or something like that and preparing the family's money, assets, whatever, to be dumped, divided, deferred, and dissipated among the members of the next generation. Okay, so that's generally what an estate plan does, whether it's a trust or a will. They're going to dump, divide, defer, and dissipate among all the kids, essentially. That's essentially all the planning mm-hmm. that goes in to most estate plans. These estate plans typically reflect a very linear way of thinking. In other words, they're transferring some amount of financial money, wealth, whatever, and that that transfer is good. And so that, by nature, means that transferring more wealth is even better. But that's not always the case, right? Not only is this a kind of myopic and simplistic approach, but it's ultimately going to be destructive. It's sort of like fire, right? You know, fire can be used for both good and not so good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and if you're not paying attention uh, to the flint and the kindling before you start that fire, it's really going to be a, a disastrous result. Uh, so, uh, guys, what if your financial plan started not with what? you know, what you wanted to give, for example, but with who? Who are you passing all this stuff onto? What kind of people are you um, generating, creating, developing, uh, shaping? The next generation, we have this privilege as parents to help shape the next generation. So why not start with the who of an estate plan rather than the what, like the bank accounts, the life insurance policies, the real estate, and that sort of thing? So if we can align our principles and values of your particular family with your tangible assets, the stuff of life, it'll help prepare your future generations for what to do with all the stuff that gets dumped in their laps when you graduate on us. Okay, so this process of who before what, we'll call it, uh, draws from the very origins, the basic history of estate law and that placed the highest value on the who, the entrusted one, the trustee, as they say today. So the kid of the estate uh, essentially goes back to preparing beneficiaries and, and uh, preparing the beneficiaries for the money, the wealth, whatever, the real estate that would be left to them. And it went pa- way past just a legal concept of a trust, but it took into account how important it was to trust another person with everything you've prepared for your future kids, grandkids, and so on. So ask yourself, when you pass away, do you want it to just be all about dumping a bunch of stuff in your kiddo's laps? Or do you want it to be about transferring opportunities and a mindset instead of just a bunch of stuff? Do you want it to be spent or blown in Vegas, right? Or do you want it to be nurtured and grown over multiple generations? Um, I don't know if you've seen this movie, Mark, but um, some of, you know, kind of what we're talking about here makes me think of a movie called The Ultimate Gift. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it. It's a pretty small, like not as well-known movie. It might have been in theaters, but, you know, it wasn't necessarily like a, you know, one of the big blockbuster hits. But um, it's a really it's a really good movie, um, definitely. And, it, and it's all about essentially transferring wealth from, um, you know, an, an older family member that passes away and and um, him kind of having like a all very wealthy, like snobby family and him not wanting to just like give them more money. And he kind of, it, I mean, what you're describing is kind of what he does. He's thinking about, um, you know, who he can give it to and who would maybe be best suited to be able to use that money for mm-hmm. good versus just kind of throwing it on their coffers and just spending it throughout their, the, their lifetime. And so... Um, 
yeah, it, it definitely has some quirks. It's not something that everyone would do. It's very elaborate. You know, it's a whole movie, obviously, but um, really good. I'd, I'd recommend checking it out if you want some inspiration on creative things you can do with your estate because this guy gets very creative. If you're all topped <laughs> off on superheroes and capes and masks and everything, go check out The the Ultimate Gift. The Ultimate right, Gift. Cool. Yeah, it's right good. On. It's It's got Abigail Breslin in it, and she's always she's always really fun. So. Anyways, uh, just wanted to throw that in there for anyone cool. that wants to watch a movie on this this topic. Um, but yes, I mean, just kind of what you're talking about here, you know, focusing on the who before the what. Um, by focusing, you know, on the flip side, when you, you focus on the means to an end, so you're thinking about, you know, like education, personal character, homeownership, entrepreneurship, charitable services, as opposed to the end, so stocks, bonds, real estate, businesses, you know, that's not average to be thinking mm-hmm. in that way, to mm-hmm. be thinking, okay, you know, how am I going to, um, what am I going to be given versus, you know, how am I going to do it? Like, oh, I'm going to just set up these stocks and give those to my family, you know. So by following this mindset, this not average mindset, you have the greatest potential to do the maximum amount of multi-generational good with the least amount of collateral damage, you know, exactly like the trust fund kids, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, um, who are, you know, 45 years old, but, you know, they never really grew up or learned how to appreciate or respect money, which kind of goes back to, Skip, I guess, however many episodes talking about raising your kids with, um, uh, you know, respect for for money and, and raising them in that way. So, you know, not your average financial families are going to have goals that are both deep and broad. They're going to be less interested in preparing their families to be rich, obviously, because that's really not that's really not the goal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but really, these families are going to be more interested in preparing your family. Um, to manage, sustain, and carry on a rich legacy versus just carrying on wealth. Yeah. You know, I mean, because that's not that's not nearly as fulfilling. You know, like you were talking about, kind of the the name. You know, the Rockefellers that means something. Yeah, they were wealthy, but the reason that they are so well known is because of you know what their legacy meant. Um, you know, they're, they're known for being wealthy, but how many other things, what did they do with that money? Mm-hmm. Um, and they did a lot of, you know, good things too. So I think it's important to keep in mind, it's not just about passing on wealth, but passing on something more mm-hmm. that um, wealth can be a factor in and help with. But So good. Yeah. The, and you know, there's a quote by Warren Buffett. He says, you want to leave your children enough to where they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a great quote for our episode. And by the way, this this episode is sort of based on a book I, I would highly recommend on this subject, which explores this topic in greater detail. The book is called Entrusted, Building a Legacy That Lasts by Andrew Howell and David York. These are both uh, estate planning attorneys that I think align with our uh, approach and adjust uh, to uh, their, fun- their estate um, perspective. So, you know, the concept of the book, Entrusted, outlines these seven core disciplines that can really be found among many high net worth families going back hundreds of years. You know, these are not hypothetical, idealistic disciplines. These are real um, disciplines that permeate through the families that have embraced these concepts. So the Rockefellers being one example. Um, You know, we could talk about the Rothschilds as another. But, uh, you know, several of these disciplines would be things like uh, you know, interested families who know who they are and what they believe, uh, families that have prepared their wealth, uh, uh, not just prepared their wealth for the family, but prepared the family for the wealth. 
Okay, so there's a diff- big difference there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another principle of maximizing the positive benefits of wealth and minimizing the negative effects of wealth. Uh, so another would be possibly uh, they preserve and protect the wealth that they've generated and that they've been able to design and implement a dynamic governance uh, for the family system, a way to make decisions together as a family. It's not just a, a tyranny or a hierarchy uh, from grandma, grandpa. It's a dynamic uh, governing system, right? So if these ideas intrigue you, I'd highly recommend reading their book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, when a family can really get to the point where they're putting their wealth behind a statement such as, you know, we are the Smiths. This is what we believe in. This is what we value. And this is what we do to impact the world. And we're going to use our money to do that, you know, they are going to produce successive generations who can be, quote, you know, entrusted as this as this book describes. Perfect. Yeah. So let's talk about a story between how this might actually play out and we can see the results of it. So there's a story of two rich guys. (laughs) All right. So uh, John D. Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt. So Rockefeller, you know, made his fortune Uh, with oil and gas and then started uh, growing the uh, standard oil. And then at his death at 1877, Vanderbilt was estimated to have been worth more than $100 million, which was more than the U.S. Treasury even had at the time. (laughs) Uh, When Rockefeller died in 1937, he was worth $1.5 billion. That would be about $409 billion today, which is more than Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jeff Bezos all put together. Imagine that for a minute. Imagine one single human being worth more than all those gentlemen today, right? It's fantastic, (laughs) crazy. So Vanderbilt acquired all his wealth with transportation. First, he started ferrying goods, and then he built, uh, you know, uh, railroads. Um, But something happened. What happened, Holly, at that point? Yeah, so kind of what happened to all this money? Where did it all go? (laughs) I mean, that's a lot of money. Um, So when Vanderbilt willed 95% of his fortune to his son, William Henry, he told him to keep the money together and to not distribute it among the other other heirs. So he said, hey, rather than just taking all this money and giving it to um, all, you know, the just kind of distribute it evenly among everyone, which is kind of, I feel like, the norm these days. And it's almost like you're, you know, ripping someone off or it's insulting if you don't go with that method. Uh, whereas Vanderbilt, I mean who had all this money, he said, nope, I'm not going to do that. He gave 95% to a single son. Um, Well, William Henry honored his father's wishes, um, so he didn't distribute it. He kept it um, with the, of course, goal and instruction of growing that wealth. And so he um, held on to the money. As a result, he actually managed to double the family fortune before he died in 1886. So that fortune was doubled by only giving it to one child with the express direction of, hey, you know, this isn't just for you to live off of and do nothing now. Um, This is for you to kind of be entrusted with so that you can then continue to grow it and keep this legacy and this wealth in place. Um, But in writing his own will then, William Henry forgot or he ignored or just didn't, I don't know, think about his father's words and what his father had done, the legacy he had left. And he ended up distributing his um, and, of course, subsequently his father's fortune among his children. So having no larger or longer term purpose 
for the money. Uh, his family and his children all spent it lavishly. Mm. And by 1947, most of the Vanderbilt money in today's dollars, which is more than a billion, has been dissipated. Wow. So it's gone. You know, yeah. the Vanderbilt money is now all gone just and, and it took one generation mm. you know i mean that that's like how quickly <laughs> it can go um yeah. how quickly it can i guess be reversed so isn't there a quote in i think it's a proverb in china that says from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations uh, mm. which similarly concept yeah that's that's wild but it's not uncommon i mean that seems to be the way it goes you know first there's a there's a there's a um productive member and then the uh the manager comes after the entrepreneur, and then after the manager comes the squanderer, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're back to poverty in three generations. But yeah. there's another story. So John Rockefeller thought it would be maybe a bad idea to leave it just directly to all of his children. Instead, he gave during his lifetime about a third of his money to charity, 530 million bucks. And in 1917, he left a good deal of the rest to his son, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. So just like you know, uh, William Henry Vanderbilt, John D. Jr., did distribute his money among his children. But, he, but crucially, he didn't give it to them directly. Instead, he created six individual trusts, all of them managed by a group of financial and legal professionals. So this would be con the concept of the family office. So the, the core holding of the fortune stayed together, since only a small portion of that uh, could be given to the kids, John D. Jr.'s kids, and since not all the money was uh, invested or spent wisely, you know, some of it's gone, right? But the trusts themselves preserved a significant portion of it. And today, after really six generations, the family office, the Rockefeller family office, is still managing a fortune of, of somewhere around $10 billion, which is awesome. So these family offices are private wealth management advisory firms that really serve the ultra high net worth investors out there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really different from traditional wealth management shops, retail uh, investment product shops. You know, they're really there to uh, offer an outsourced solution to managing the financial and investment side of an affluent individual or family. So there's really about 150 Rockefellers out there today who are still getting income, still getting interest payments as of last year. And still that $10 billion still remains in tax, intact. Uh, and it's, it's you know, not only feeding the great-grandchildren income, but it's also providing $50 million a year that goes directly to different charities. Yeah. So what is the lesson here? You know, people who have worked hard to accumulate a substantial amount of money naturally want to see it preserved in some way after they die. Uh, the lesson to be taken from kind of these two families, Rockefeller and the Vanderbilt, um, is that dividing your wealth among your direct descendants, which is, again, what most people do. They mm -hmm. just say, take my pot, divide mm -hmm. it evenly, um, almost guarantees that it will disappear within you know two generations mm. and it's going to be gone. Wow. So is there a better way, right? A, a good financial plan doesn't just get you from retirement to death, uh, which unfortunately is how most financial investment advisors think, uh, but a truly good financial plan will get you thinking in the mindset of the Rockefellers. A full financial plan is also about how you make big purchases during your lifetime, not just about how you're going to spend money on groceries in your golden years. Uh, 
So we see this full life financial strategy integrating like so hand in glove guys with the bank on yourself concept. So here's what I mean. Uh, when you when you have a bank on yourself type policy, it's essentially establishing for yourself and for your family a family office, just like the Rockefellers. It has a capital fund for your family and for your family's business, uh, and that can be you know used uh, for any reason your family or your business might need. With the policy comes with it a team of employees for your family office at your service. These are people like at the insurance company who are investing in, you know, safe, predictable assets. These are certified financial analysts, a team of lawyers <laughs> at your disposal, and a bunch of people who are making smart bond purchases and so forth at the insurance company who are making these prudent portfolio investment decisions for your general portfolio of the insurance company. There's also going to be actuaries calculating and engineering sophisticated financial vehicles like whole life insurance for your benefit. And crucially, you'll have a core uh, advisor, a bank on yourself authorized advisor like Holly or I that have helped establish the financial strategy that'll help you achieve your financial objectives for your family. So I really feel like there's a sort of an unattainable uh, view. When you hear about the family office, you're like, well, hey, I can't afford 50 lawyers a couple of financial analysts, bond uh, investors. No, you don't need any of that if you have the ability to purchase a whole life policy, which anyone can do, essentially. Mm -hmm. You get the benefits of this without necessarily having to, you know, hire all these uh, professionals. Yeah, and hit that ultra high net worth (laughs) number either. Um, You know, so having a bank on yourself policy, you know, can give you this style family office like uh, Rockefeller had set up, a business that your family can use for its benefit. Uh, But as we mentioned, you know, as we've been talking about in this episode, you could just as easily blow up your family business if you don't have the mindset of a banker. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of clients that have set up policies and yet are still just beginning to learn the mindset and the principles and the disciplines of being a good banker. This mindset sometimes can take many years or even a full lifetime, but once you really get it, you're interested then in passing this mindset on to your family and future generations. You know, so that that way, again, the money you're building up in a bank on yourself portfolio doesn't get plundered. You know, mm-hmm. so um, you know we're ha- we're you know obviously helping people get you know whole life insurance policies set up, which naturally, just by nature of the product that they are, come with a death benefit. And so again, you know, we haven't talked about it much on this podcast, but we'd be remiss if we don't address those death benefits, right? And right. who they're going to, how they're spent, and and really just awesome things that you can do with them beyond just, again, here's Dumping the pot, it. here's the death benefit, split it evenly. Right. So good. So what, what what might that look like? You know, let's put some bones around or some skin around the bones here. So let's imagine, you know, when your children are young and you have the mindset maybe of a banker, you might set up an expectation that your children will be putting some of their earned money from like summer jobs and such into a bank on yourself type whole life policy. Regular listeners might remember that bank on yourself policies have a few components to add to some uh, of their premium, right? You can add more money to your policy than the required amount that builds up wealth. And these are flexible and optional uh, components of the policy. So the kids might skip a year if they need to go to summer camp and don't make any money this year. You don't have to force them to add more money to it, but it gets them in the discipline of flexibly adding some money that they can then enjoy uh, for the you know for their purchases, their first car, their first summer vacation. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and as parents, uh, you could have a dollar for dollar matching program. We have a lot of clients that do this where the kids, the, the teenagers' kids might put in a certain dollar and then the parents will match that dollar, almost like a 401k in some ways, to save up for big purchases like a car where the parents pay the required base premium and the kids can throw in the paid up additions rider. Mm -hmm. Yep. So then as a family, you can be using the cash value and budget the cash value for special projects that, you know, they're wanting to save up for. So (laughs) crucially, you might have just realized I just said you can and should budget your cash value. That's a big deal. So, I mean, just spending it, quote unquote, on paper before you take a loan against the policy to buy a car or anything else. So, you know, we need to be budgeting before we take these loans. And so why is that? Well, of course, you know, we've talked about, we have talked about this on the podcast Mm -hmm. um, in great length. You know, budgeting is the first and most basic form of creating an entrusted family that we described, you know, earlier in this episode uh, based on the book. So you see budgeting is all about prioritization, right? Mm -hmm. So by having a conversation with your children about how much their cash value should be allocated for their car, how much should be allocated for their college or next year's summer vacation, you're making important family decisions and you're really showing your kids, you know, what you value as a family. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, budgeting is prioritization. So what are we prioritizing? here, what's important to us, let's go through and decide. And by doing that and making them a part of that conversation, you're going to be instilling values in them. You know, yeah. when you have that conversation of saying, hey, maybe college is more important than, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, you're going to show them the value of an education or, you know, pursuing, um, you know, not that everyone has to go to college or anything like that, but, you know, just you're, you're showing them, you know, how they should be prioritizing mm-hmm. not only right now as a teenager, but that's going to, you know, of course, carry through with them um, into their older years as well. And you and I both, I think uh, we've talked about this off air, but we, Holly, you and I both individually budget our cash values and our policies for prioritization. And you're right. Episode 19, we get into the four rules of budgeting. So folks that want to get into how we budget our policy cash values, check that episode out. But let's take it even a step further. A lot of our clients have put policies on family members, you know, spouses, kiddos, that, and have made it intentional for them to teach what they've done in setting up this uh, system of policies. So for these clients, it, you know, it wasn't just a financial transaction to buy a couple of whole life policies uh, done in the privacy of their own financial life. We're going to be getting into some of how the policy uh, and the family is your greatest asset here in the next few weeks. Uh, But rather than just buying a bunch of policies and forgetting about them, putting them in a drawer somewhere, it's integrating right into the family's financial life. They've made it part of their extended family gatherings. You know, so one of our clients is a grandfather. And uh, when he met with us a few years ago to start his own bank on yourself type policy, we unfortunately learned that he was uninsurable due to some heart, heart issues. So he took the necessary steps then to take out policies on his wife, his adult children, and each grandchild as well. So he and his wife are still the owners and beneficiaries of all the policy cash value and death benefits. But his original goal is still being met in giving these whole life policies as as assets to the whole family that they can then carry on for generations. He set up a policy on each of his family members, but it didn't just stop with signing a couple of pages. He's building a system of principles and values into his family by teaching them and encouraging them to view the family as an embodied representation of a value system. Think of that for a minute, an embodied representation of a value system. What do we, as the Smith family or or whatever, the Willis family, what do we truly stand for? 
and values like perseverance, gratitude, generosity, just to name a few. So each time his family got together around Thanksgiving, that sort of thing, he would intentionally bring one of these values up in the forefront of their conversations. He'd bring every story sort of back to these these concepts and work it into a rich conversation around the dinner table. But then it went even further. He even took a few moments each year to pass out annual statements that he had received from the insurance company. Here's how big your dividend was this year, little grandson. I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's going to change the worldview of a little kiddo, right? Uh, so he'd show them what their dividends were, how much had accumulated in the family pot, so to speak, and uh, what would be given to them when he should pass away. These would be the funds that would be set aside for retirement income. But in addition to that, these policies could also be used for tons of other purposes. Uh, he's helped pay off some of the adult children's student loans. Another chunk went to paying the car loan off and, and helping buy future vehicles and down payments for the family, um, you know, the adult children's real estate and so forth. So they even use uh, some software that we at Lake Growth have given them to keep up with policy loans that they've taken out. And family members uh, have been really gracious but principled in paying those loans back. Mm -hmm. That's super important to learn to think like a banker is to collect the loan repayments. All right. So by the way, if you want to get access to this software that we've given to that client uh, to manage your cash values the right way, call our offices. Uh, we're at 1-800-962-9141. Or you can email hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. So uh, if you want to get access to that software, just let us know. We can get it right to you. So no one in his family can get enough uh, of a loan until they've been making payments on a smaller loan that they've successfully paid off. So I think that's a really cool and smart idea. So the loan amount that he's able to give you know, his son or sister-in-law or whoever starts small for a small need. And then as the family member proves that they're ready to take on a bigger loan, he'll offer a bigger amount to that family member. If the loan is not paid back, the family doesn't come and like repo the car <laughs> or mm -hmm. anything, but they're simply seen as off the balance sheet, right? And they can't get access to larger amounts of cash and they have to use another bank down the street, unfortunately. Now, thankfully, that's not been the case, but that's been sort of the the boundaries of the system or the principles he's trying to instill. Mm -hmm. So he invited me to help set all this up. I don't show up to most of these meetings. It is a family event after all, but they do invite me to some of their uh, ongoing meetings. We've even done Zoom or uh, Skype type video calls. Uh, they often will do it around a campfire with like marshmallows and, and they'll be talking and discussing financial matters, what the family is going to do in the coming years to invest and so forth. It's just a really phenomenal example. Not everybody has to have his personality, but maybe make this your own thing. You know, how do we make, you know, turn a couple of financial assets like bank on yourself type policies into a mindset that you can pass on to your future generations? So um, Holly, let's talk together about some of, some of the takeaways of this episode. Can you share with us the, the first one there? Yeah. So, I mean, really, I guess as a takeaway, this strategy that we've you know discussed and been talking about here today doesn't have to be complex. I mean, maybe that sounds really overwhelming hearing the story of this of this particular client and just like, oh man, like, you know, they probably have like 30 policies and they have to track them all and this and that. Sounds really complex, but it doesn't need it to be. Um, I mean, building a family office just starts starts first with, you know, who you are and what you believe about yourself and the kind of people you want to be in the world. So, you know, start by taking an inventory of what principles and values you want to share as a family. 
doesn't have to be lofty. It could just be as simple as like, you know, we want to be good people that do good things in the world. Um, it can be that simple. I mean, always want to put a little bit of meat behind goals. So you, it's not as am, am, ambiguous, but um, doesn't have to be super lofty. Um, but just, you know, the, the point is making sure that they're articulated and they're thought through because that's the only way you're going to be able to um, – actually portray those and share those and then ultimately leave those to another generation. Um, Also, you know, what values are you already showing? You know, what values do you feel like you're already um, kind of possessing and, you know, kind of exuding through the way that you operate in the world, but maybe again, they aren't articulated. Um, So start with just two or three and kind of, you know, get those set up for, for you and your family. Maybe another takeaway. Thank you, Holly. Maybe another takeaway is to maybe start a bank on yourself policy on yourself and possibly on your spouse. And from there, maybe grow beyond that to other family members as well. And then the key is don't keep it a secret. Don't keep it a secret. Talk to your family members about what's happening, why you're doing this, uh, so that they don't have to sleep with one eye open, right? If you've got a life insurance policy on them, they have to know <laughs> why. Uh, and you also be sure to budget it on our software. If you don't already have something else or a legal pad or something, get something to you know, put these dollars uh, to work on paper before you spend them in the world. Yep. And then finally, you know, invite your family to use the family as a line of credit to them and expect that they will treat the family with respect uh, by repaying the loans and being timely on payments, just as they would any other bank, right? I mean, there's repercussions when you don't pay Mm -hmm. a normal bank back. So why would it be any different when it's mom and dad, but a little little different (laughs) there Mm -hmm. too. So um, those are just kind of some of our takeaways from today's episode on uh, keeping up with the Rockefellers and what estate planning can look like um, in all its different various forms. So just want to say thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.